This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative, and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Nico. As usual, I'm joined by my good friend, Sam. And today we have a surprise guest. Sam, would you like to introduce our guest, Charlie? Yes, today we have my old best friend and now my current business partner, Jack Hughes. Hello. (laughs) Hey, Jack. Could you give a a short intro? Sure. My name is Jack Hughes. I've known Sam for 20 plus years. I'm the co-founder of Syncify. I've led growth at Two Tech Nation's top fastest growing startups and generally a growth hacker and performance marketing person. And yeah, now I'm CEO and co-founder of Syncify with Sam. Awesome. I'm super glad to have you on. So if you guys have heard or listened to our previous podcast, you know that Sam, most of the time, is hustling away at this startup called Syncify, where you guys are trying to socialize audio. Yeah, you could say that. We're building the new social layer for audio, starting with podcasts and audiobooks, where you can listen together at the same time or catch up with each other asynchronously and chat in the app around these things and sort of share all your favorite highlights and recommendations and just turn it into a place to experience things together rather than being alone. Sam is genuinely more excited about it than what he just made it sound like. <laughs> like he's normally way more excited as well. I, I am. You, a bit like, no, 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 no. I'm just, I don't know the process here. So I like, like yeah. Sam just said it then. I was like, I'm not downloading that. <laughs> so, so yeah. Very cool. And so today we are discussing the book Venture Deals by Brad Felt and Jason Mendelson. And as this, the name suggests, it talks about everything in the venture capitalism business. And so there, as you guys are currently fundraising a bit, talking to a lot of investors, you might be able to add some valuable insights there. So a little bit more about the authors. So Brad Felt has been an early stage investor and entrepreneur for over 30 years. Prior to co-founding Foundry Group, he co-founded Mobius Venture Capital and Intensity Ventures. And He's also a co-founder of Techstars, which might explain why you guys were supposed to read this book as a part of the Techstar course. And then Jason Mendelson has over 20 years of experience in the venture capital and technology industries in a multitude of investing, legal, and operational roles. Prior to co-founding Foundry Group, Jason was a managing director and general counsel for Mobius Venture Capital, and he's also a co-founder of SRS or Aquicom. And so, yeah, the book reads like a bit of a textbook where it just really describes the whole venture capitalism business and how a venture deals is constructed, all the different players. It goes over the different terms. And I felt after reading it that it's like a must read. As an entrepreneur, it's very useful, very short enough to be able to read in like a few days or weeks, however fast you read. And contains a lot of insights in like just finding money and raising money from PCs. Yeah, there's just so many things that you can mess up if you're not really looking for it in not hard to understand just like a few basic things just by reading the book and you're like wow i'm so glad i've read this <laughs> i had no idea how it worked and just understanding how a vc works as well like you kind of i don't know i just had like the wrong kind of concept in my head and um reading it you're like wow i could start a vc i, I kind of know what's going on there now and uh, you just understand what their incentives are a lot more and why they work the way they work which makes it much easier to then sell something to them because you know what they're doing That's what I found. In the past years, I've been regularly talking to VCs and I wish I had read this book because if you use the right words, I think you already come across as way more experienced. 
And I think that would have probably helped when talking to them, just to come across as a more experienced entrepreneur and to ask them the right questions and the questions that they might not expect that display that you really know the industry and like as if you've already had a lot of investments in term sheets and stuff. So it's going to be hard for us to give you a summary of the book because it's a textbook and it already summarizes a very complex industry and a very complex concept. So I think we're going to pick out some of the most interesting parts. And I think if this book interests you or you need to have the knowledge of this book, you should just read the whole thing because it's definitely going to be worth your while. So what did you guys, what was one important concept that you guys really liked or found important? I mean, the first part I liked was just like reading about how a VC works and like where they get their money from what they're trying to do with it and the kind of timelines that they work on for their funds, that kind of stuff. Just like a bunch of things I just didn't really understand at all. It was just like, okay, these are just these people that have like lots of money. And I thought it was like, it was all their money or something. And then they're kind of investing it, but it's okay. Actually raises money from limited partners and they probably don't even have it necessarily all in the bank until they confirm their investment. And then they can wire for that to their partners to actually go and transfer it, that kind of thing. Is something I didn't understand. And that was kind of interesting to know because I have heard of like VC firms pulling out because suddenly their limited partner or something can do stuff now since it's like, okay, actually that is a genuine excuse. And so even when the VC says it's a thing, it's not yet a thing until it's actually kind of arrived. So it's really is a case of like when the money arrives in your bank is when it's really going to get there, even when the person you fully trust. Also just how a VC makes money. So they'll have the fund that maybe like they'll raise like it's a 50 million fund for five years or like a 2 million fund or anything like that. It's just interesting that like they basically have that amount of time to deploy the capital, but they want to kind of get it deployed earlier to then start making the money back on time. And that like, that's why they'll start chasing you to like try and close or push you to sell like, these kind of things. You kind of need to know what sort of returns they're expecting and when, if you're going to work with a VC, because otherwise they'll have the wrong incentives. If you actually want to take 10 years before you actually are ready to sell anything or and that kind of stuff you might have a problem if they, their fund needs to be closing soon and then also just how they make money because i also thought they, they just sort of waited until the end and they just got all the money back when you sell sold your business or something that's literally what i thought they did yeah like, yeah exactly <laughs> like until just, just then, like, that's what i thought they did <laughs> okay so so what happens is like they deploy this money and then but the whole time they're deploying it so they say they have like a, a 50 million fund they'll be charging like a two percent fee the entire time to their limited partners so they just put themselves on a salary and that's for them to pay all their wages and have fancy flights and all these fun stuff. And then if the fund returns like an extra 10% profit or like hundred percent profit, they then charge like a 10% fee on the profit at the end. And they're on like a permanent salary for doing it. So literally if I had a bunch of rich people, mm-hmm. I could go to them and start a VC and say, you can be my limited partners. Our philosophy is we're going to invest in exactly this type of company. And I'm mm-hmm. going to be able to make this much money back. Cause if I'm really good at finding these types of companies and then they'll just sort of be like, okay, cool, Sam, this is the fund I've closed it. And then I just start like charging money and I have a salary and stuff. So like we could start a VC if Syncify failed or like maybe me and Nico start one. The hard part is convincing people to give you money. Yeah. That's going to be the hard part. If you've got the network and the knowledge and you're good at sales and stuff. Do they only take money out of the startup when it is like down the line? Yeah. So you basically only take money out when it IPOs. Yeah, that's it. Or if you, if you invest at really early stage, it might be that you can then sell your your shares for like like a later stage. So when it goes like series B or something, maybe some of them will buy like half of your shares as well as from the actual company founders. Okay. Yeah. So usually there's uh, some acquisition points 
with tech firms, it's often the case. Usually, I think, from my knowledge, VCs work in the 2%, 20% system where take 2% each year as like some kind of fee. So let's say the fund is 10 million. They'll charge 200K each year as to, to pay salaries, to pay expenses. And then on all the returns above 10 million, so let's say they sell other companies and the end return is 20 million, let's say, they'll charge 20% on the extra 10 million that was generated above you know, break even. So based on that rule, then, if you consider the leading VCs in the world, like the Anderson Horowitz and VCs like that, do you think they charge more to LPs, et cetera, based on the fact they have such a great success record? So they're like, okay, we're going to raise 100 million, 200 million round. We're actually going to charge 10% as like an operational fee. And then we're going to charge 40% of uh, the overall wealth that comes back just because they're so good at it. I don't think they would, because first of all, the bigger you get, the more the 2% becomes. Because let's say if you have a $10 million fund, it's going to be 200K. If it's it's 100 million, then it's going to be 2 million. If it's, let's say 1 billion, you already have like 20 million on a yearly basis. Like you can have a lot of people employed for that. So you see that because of the, the, the economics of scale, one person can make decisions for way bigger deals. And so that way their salaries already increase. If that makes sense. And so I don't think it's even worth for them to increase the 2% or even the 20% because of the numbers that we're talking already and the absolute number of profits that they're already getting from it. Yeah. And because they've got the huge name, they get like the best deal flow anyway. So they can also, yeah, they're going to do well. So people just want to give them as much money. So it's easier to raise their funds. And stuff, yeah. So. And also don't forget that the money that they charge as a sort of management fee is not money that they can invest. And so it already becomes harder to generate profits. If they would charge 10% on an annual basis, they only have like 90% to invest and they have to make up the 10% before they get to the profits where they actually generate their real, the real money for them. Normally as a person, when you get given money, you kind of want to maybe keep half of it as savings and not be risky with it. But like, it's their duty to like try and invest all of it and like make as big a return as possible. It's not just to like sit on it and do nothing. That's the whole point of why people are giving it to them is to make it like huge. Mm. So they do you know, try and fill out their entire round with actual companies. Like they want to have their money at work as much of the time as possible. And so as a VC, I think investing in a company that fails is not at all as bad as not investing in you know, the next Facebook. And that's for them like the worst thing that could happen or it's something that they're really afraid of. And that's why it's so important for you to create some sense of FOMO, fear of missing out when talking to them. They, they just don't want to miss out on the big fish because it's a big fish that generates all of the returns of a VC fund. If they invest in one or two companies that go like 100x, that's going to make them the money, not necessarily the 20 other companies that, that only go, you know, two, three x. When I got told that VCs really have the same sense of FOMO as anyone else who, who kind of is now, mm-hmm. I had no idea it was actually way worse for them than it is for someone who's a normal, like in the recruitment game or a sales thing. If you just mention two names that you are in first, second, third conversations with, the way they treat your call from the word go, or maybe a couple of minutes in, changes fundamentally, which is really, really interesting because they don't want to be the person who misses out that someone else is going to win from. But it's not like term sheets or anything like that. It's simply mentioning the other people who've been willing to have a conversation with you. And that's something I never really anticipated kind of when I started talking to them, but it is absolutely a a real thing. If I remember correctly, in the book, they actually say that you should avoid giving the names of the other VC firms that you're talking to. Really? Hmm. Yeah, because they they explicitly mentioned that just because the first thing they will do is give them a call. And the moment they start talking to the other VCs, I think you lose like a lot of leverage as an entrepreneur. 
that's interesting because I have mentioned a couple of names to people because they want to know who you're talking to because they like leading with certain partners. So I'm not going to name any now, and I've said that, but I know that there have been companies that like to lead with other companies. And if they know they're in talks, if they really, really like you, then it can actually start to have the conversation a lot earlier. And so it's less frightening when it gets later down the line for them because they already have a good idea of who they want to partner with in the investment. Whereas if you're kind of going, oh, well, I'm just speaking to a bunch of different VCs, there you're going to go, well, I have no idea whether you're lying or not. And I imagine every single person is going to be going, oh, I'm speaking to loads of VCs. However, if you go and if you've got a strong pitch and you're really confident and you go, I'm on the third call with X, I'm the third call with Y, and they go back and talk and they go, yes, I am actually speaking to that person. I actually think that's going to completely flip on its head and it's going to be way stronger than having this anonymity, which, you know, it, people can just mimic by having absolutely no interest in their products whatsoever. I agree. It sounds very plausible what we propose. I think maybe the thing that they mention is if you ever say a name of another VC that you're talking to, just know that they'll immediately pick up the phone and start a conversation with each other. And that can, I guess, be positive or negative, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're going, they're going to do that at some point. Like at some point when it comes down to once the long list is done, you have the second, th I'm literally got my Trello board of VCs, like and investors to the right of me now. And I'm, I'm thinking at one stage, they are going to pick up the phone to one another and, and do it anyway. It's almost like if I can get them on a call together and go through both their issues at the same time, then the reservations they're going to have are going to be conquered on one phone call. And they're also going to have a really, really in-depth understanding of us and our business because they're going to be sharing the experience of getting to know the company. And I think there's something really awesome about that. On our app at the moment, in the beta stage, we actually have two or three VCs who are using it. And it's terrifying, but awesome to actually see them kind of go and, and operating and following you. I think if you can get as close as possible to doing that very early on and you're just transparent with the things that you're doing, I quite like that. So it's probably one of the things I might disagree with actually in, in the book. Not that I know anything as much as Brad Feld. <laughs> Yeah, because you guys are still very early stage. And I guess in your position, you're talking more about if you could get an investment and less about like reaching an optimal valuation for that investment. I also, I, I would not, I would never, ever think in my head that we're not going to get investment. Getting investment for me is a foregone conclusion based on team product traction, all that kind of thing. So I actually do naturally think more towards evaluation. As soon as I feel like I'm hankering for like, okay, please, someone give me money. My entire mindset would change, but my mindset does not operate that way. My mind is like, who am I going to let in to invest in this awesome company that I've created with someone I want to create the company with? So I, I absolutely don't think about if I think when and how much. So I actually don't treat it like a pre-seed. I'm like, okay, these are awesome VCs. Do we want to work with these people? Okay, let's start talking to them. Let's start having the conversations like that. So I don't have that like famine mindset i have the growth mindset of, of making sure that comes oh, towards it abundance abundance yes. mindset yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh but i plugged you i just plugged you. i just plugged this yeah. podcast there you go growth mindset. <laughs> there you go you're absolutely correct with that mindset i think it's probably a mistake that quite a few entrepreneurs made and i have to say i've made it in the past as well to just you know be as you said a hungry or famine for investment instead of acting as if you know we can find investment it's just we want to find our best partner and a good deal. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And when you start talking to angels and you go into mindset like, okay, because it is, you are selling a portion of your company, right? And it's really awesome. I think it came out last year about like either Ferrari or Dolce Van or someone like that. They really didn't want someone to wear or drive their car or wear their product because of the brand association. And I feel quite similar to that with, like, with angels. If you've got someone who's just really rude to you on LinkedIn and has mm. like wants to talk to you in it or send emails that aren't very forthcoming and doesn't really want to op open up to you, 
and then they just want it. They just look at you with dollar signs in their eyes. And that's absolutely fine because you want their money. But at the same time, if you've got someone else out there who has awesome connections, has uh, brilliant introductions, has a success track record in doing these kind of things, you want to be able to have those conversations with those people. And as soon as you sell a bit of your pie to someone else, there's less pie to be able to sell to those people that will actually enjoy it. So, yeah. That's a very good summary of a very big part of the book. So uh, <laughs> thanks for that. No, it's, it's a very good point. Cool. Really right. Cool, yeah. I'd like to talk about some of the concepts that were discussed in the book, that just single words that can make a huge difference in the deal at the end and the deal structure. And one of them is participating. So basically, whenever a VC invests in your company, usually they will want to receive preferred shares. And these preferred shares can be participating or not. And Sam, do you have like the good definition of the participation part? So I did the homework thing on this like a month ago and I've already kind of forgotten but the good thing is that I know the website to go back to and just like plug in all the numbers and like see the, the model of the table change on the graph, <laughs> which will sort my life out. But basically it gives the holder the right to receive dividends preferred to the preferred shareholders first. And I think it also relates to when you sell that like you'll get the money first. So basically let's say they invest at a 5 million valuation or something. They can have preferred shares up to like 10 million. So like, if it sells for 10 million or less, they'll get all the money first before it gets any money. And it's once we get over that valuation where my actual shares actually come back to being the sort of the percentage, even if I own 80% of the company, it might be that I have to wait until I get 100 million valuation before I actually get 80% kind of thing. It's a very important clause, mostly for when things don't go exactly as planned. So yeah. as you're saying, let's say that a VC invests 5 million and they have, I think, two times participating, for example. And let's say the company at some point, let's say they invest 5 million and they get, let's say, 20% of the company. So they have a post-money valuation of the company is 25 million and things don't go as planned and the company gets sold for 15 million. So actually less than the original last round because they have two times participating they will receive, as you say, 10 million of that 15 million share, although they only own 20% of the company. And so that little world can have like a huge impact. And I see like, you guys can't see this, but Jack is opening his mouth in amazement and is now never going to forget the word participating in any I'm term sheet. i start using that um, word religiously now. <laughs> like, the good thing about the book is it just makes you go like, shit, there's some things I have to not screw up. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Um, this is really interesting for me because I, I like love the idea of, of closing and getting it getting going through the door. Clearly, certain points where like I'm going to bring Sam heavily back into the, the conversation to have these kind of talks. But luckily, these come down to the term sheet, and I think the term sheet is something you look at. Yeah, and you're, you do have like mm. like you get a term sheet, and then you have like a second meeting to discuss the term sheet of yeah. what you want in there or not, and then. Third it's, sign it. Yeah, it's not like when you sign a gym contract. You know, you go to the gym yeah. and it's and it's like da da da, and then you, you sign it and then you quit your gym membership. You just cancel your bank account line. Like, oh, please don't take my money. I'm not going anymore. And the next thing you know, they've got like, handed over a membership to you to a debt recovery, and they're coming and they're like, you now owe. We bought the right. You now owe like a thousand. Happened to me before, by the way, a thousand pounds. And you're like, oh my god, <laughs> fucking assholes. I should have signed that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 <clears throat> wow. Yeah, exactly. Do you guys plan on getting legal counsel if you get a term sheet? Yeah. Is that what you learned from the book? <laughs> so on the Venture Deals sort of course that I did, one week as a startup, you make your own term sheet from your side of the view for the defense of the VC. And then like the next week you do the opposite. So you pretend to be a VC trying to make the best deal for yourself to give to the startup. And then the week after that, you kind of basically do a negotiation between the two. So I've got quite used to all the main different terms when I'm actually looking at it and what to pick up on. 
can I necessarily recall exactly in the moment what they are? Probably not. But I um, do feel a lot more confident that like I could go through that stuff. It's not too hard. And certainly just like modeling what those things actually mean. And because mm. you can, it's like, it's like, it's a bit of a, you know, bartering things and everything in the term sheet is flexible, but not everything at once. So you'll be able to bath like one of the terms or one of the other terms, but you won't be able to bath all of them. So you just need to like know which are the most important things for you. And if you are like feeling a bit worried about like the success of the business, then maybe the participation fee is like, okay, I do want to be able to exit pretty quickly, but maybe you're like, I just don't give a fuck. I've got enough money. I think this can be a billion dollars. Like if it doesn't go right, it doesn't matter. I'll just start the next thing. I don't need the money. So perhaps you want to barter on a different club or something. You can just sort of take that with your knowledge mm. and decide. <laughs> yes. In the book, they often make the case that in the end, all of these venture deals boil down to two things. It starts with control and second is the economics of the deal. And so all of the different terms in some way are going to influence one of these two things. So first is a control, like, okay, when there's a proposal from a company, like who has the rights to say no, or who can sell their stock first, or is there a right of first refusal, et cetera. So that's one. And then the financials is like who receives what part of the company when there's money involved, when there's an IPO or when there's an acquisition. And so that's part one. And then Another point I think, Sam, that you were just suggesting is that as an entrepreneur, it is very useful to use a spreadsheet to do so, like some scenario analyses to think, okay, well, let's say that everything was horrible and we liquidate with one million in the bank. Or what if everything goes viral and we become a billion dollar company and we go for an IPO and every case in between and just model it out and just, yeah, I think it makes sense to think about, okay, if things go bad, do we care that we don't get anything or do we just need like some kind of buffer? And, and yeah, I guess part of that. Yeah, exactly. It is kind of quite interesting like when you do play with the graphs and stuff, but just seeing like how much money you actually get for like, okay, even if I sort of make the company five times more valuable, I'm still not getting anything until mm. I do something. It's uh, definitely worth just in the numbers and knowing what you're happy with or not. In some ways, it's kind of, maybe it's almost motivating, like, okay, perhaps I do have to get it past like a valuation of like 15 million if I want to get any money and like I'm happy with that as like a motivating thing because I believe it's going to be like a 50 million business and I really need to put all my eggs in the basket to make it like burning your bridges almost or something. That actually makes a, a lot of sense to me. Someone who I've, I've kind of worked around a lot of startups with lots of meetings and this, this kind of thing, just in general networking with them. When you see someone raise a huge series B, let's say, or, or whatever, and then you go and meet and talk to the founders who've done them. If you raise a series B, B, let's say, and you raise 50 million or something like that as a series, series B, your company supposedly is going to be worth hundreds of millions or like a, maybe like 150 million, whatever. But I'm still yet to meet a founder who has it in their head that like, oh, crikey, this is it now. Like I'm absolutely in the clear. Like they don't have that kind of financial freedom yet in their head. And now you guys are talking about this. I'm wondering, is that because they still have a lot of fingers in that pot and a lot of things to go through, a lot of stress and like actually the eventuality at the end of it, if they try to sell the business tomorrow, what terms are in place to make sure or, or to stop them actually getting that insane like um, paycheck that they want? And I was wondering, if do you, do you guys think that, that it's because of these kind of uh, preferential shares and the, the term sheets, it's actually kind of stopping them or, or keeping them really framed in the business? And is that a good thing that VCs do? They're like, look, we, want, we think this can be a billion dollar idea. So we're actually going to try and track you and keep you in this in the game right till the word, right till we're out of there. So it only is a real kicker when you get to like a, an 800 to $1.5 billion business. It's a very good point. 
I think uh, there might be a big, big chance that that's the case. Although from my personal experience, I have the impression that a lot of successful entrepreneurs don't really think about the money when they're building their business. And for them, it's like they want to build their business and change the world. And it's that mentality that results in super high valuations, usually, Is that, if that makes sense. Do you think that's less common on a B2B as opposed to a B2C side of things today? I imagine, I don't know, that people are less passionate from a, if you sort of had a SaaS product that to do with like that's not going to necessarily change the world. So wouldn't you be more happy and comfortable with an, an earlier exit? It's a very good question. You make a good point. I haven't thought about it, but it, it makes sense that there's a difference between B2B and, and B2C products. Yeah, could very well be that B2B founders are more valuation driven and return driven for themselves. But for example, if, if you look at, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Steph Bezos, they don't need to work anymore at all. And there's way more examples of those, but, and they still keep at it. Elon Musk, for example, like he's trying to change the world. He doesn't care about the, the numbers and the zeros in his bank account, I would guess. I guess they're slightly more in the middle ground, but I think Jeff Bezos now is in the position where he could fundamentally change the scope of, of everything, the way that humans interact with, with anything. And he already has done. But someone, let's say, who's let's say in Salesforce, Salesforce have fundamentally changed the way that sales and operation teams operate and treat consumers and customers alike, right? This is probably slightly off topic. Do you think that is a world-changing idea and concept? And if so, does that make that person get up in the morning and go to work based on what it's doing for the world or what it's doing as a business? Good question. My um, naive mind says the second thing, that they want to change the world. But I can imagine that there's a difference there between products that are more customer facing and have a huge impact on, on the world itself and other companies that some products just make big corporations more efficient, right? And it's not really world changing, but it is very profitable. And imagine if someone could say a few years ago that Salesforce were going to turn around and buy Slack for 20 something billion as well. You're like, wait, what? Like they're going to do what? And you just think, wow, okay, that's crazy. And kind of conversations they're having at that end of the scale in terms of mergers and VC money or whether they even need investment or anything anymore. Probably not, right? There's no need for it. Yeah, very true. All right. Some other points, remarks? I can't remember all of the definitions, but there's a lot of like stupid name definitions or like they just sound really horrible. I mean, like drag along, I remember wasn't the worst. There were definitely some much worse sounding ones and I can't remember any of them. Mm. <laughs> but can you remember the definition of drag along? No. If you would tell me the definition, I would be able to say that's a drag along, but <laughs> no, unfortunately not the other way around. Drag along right is a provisional clause in an agreement that enables a majority shareholder to force a minority shareholder to join in the sale of a company. The majority owner doing the dragging must give the minority shareholder the same price terms and conditions as any other seller. Ooh. I guess in this case, a VC that has, let's say, 20% of the company has a drag-along right. So when they find a good deal, actually force all the other shareholders to sell as well or whatever, like a majority, like if, if they're, they team up and they have like 40%, that is enough to force the other ones to sell as well. Hypothetically, if, if Jeff Bezos owns 11% of Amazon and he had a huge amount of stakeholders, does that mean that they could force him to have a sale if they had drag-along rights? I think there's a difference between the types of shares. For example, I, I don't know about Amazon, but I do know, for example, of Facebook, there's like type A, type B shares. And I think economically, Mark Zuckerberg owns less than 50% of the company, whatever, and economically, right? But control-wise, I think he still owns like 68% or something. That's a number I have in my head that could be completely wrong, but it's it's about 50%. And so I guess, again, it comes it boils down to like the financials and the control in each deal. But yeah, 
I don't know if you guys wanted to know a little bit more like the process of actually having your first ever calls with investors or anything like that and how like the myth of VC breaks down really, really quickly into not being that mythical and actually just being straightforward conversations and that kind of thing. But that's been quite a revealing process thus far. I think the VC and venture capital has such a grandiose name. The idea of making a deal with venture capital this just sounds like it's, it's going to be like Lord of the Rings-esque in some way, like some epic kind of deal that it takes months and months to be able to coordinate where in actual fact the process is incredibly simple and they do want to talk to you to begin with and as the conversations happen they become more people than they do venture capitalists so that's been an interesting side of it for sure yeah it's still you're building a relationship right and you're not really working with a company as with the representative of the company per se in the end probably going to be sitting on your board jack can you share some of the like thoughts you had when talking to investors yeah, I mean, it was interesting to begin with because I phrase it as selling as opposed to investing because I, I know that's quite like an investing investing. But if I frame it in mind as selling, it puts me into a, a headspace whereby I'm very aware of like the transactional model of it. So when I'm talking to potential investors, the first thing they kind of want to figure out with me, with Sam or with the company is like, why are we here as opposed to doing a bunch of other things that we could have done? And I never really thought that was going to be question that I have to answer and I don't find the most founder-centric VCs who tend to be my favorite ones I speak to it's like okay why are you doing this and they don't necessarily mean why are you doing this in terms of like how much money you're going to make or like what is going to be the team building or what what is going to be like that it's like no why are you doing it like why is Jack going on this mission and signing a mission together when you guys can be doing a bunch of different things and that's a really weird question to have to answer. And I always, I almost think it's a question that's meant to try and challenge your own reasoning and to make sure you understand why you're doing it. And I've had that question way more times than I thought I was going to have, which is quite interesting. But I, I'm someone who just really likes to kind of explain the simplify story anyway, as often as possible, whenever I get the chance. So it kind of falls into it. No VC is the same, but ones I've not potentially had the most fun with, <laughs> to, say it, to say it politely, is is when they talk about a revenue model within the first like 15 to 20 seconds of the call post um, the elevator pitch. And if they've done any research on us, you're talking about a B2C company. We've got a really good MVP, like a surprisingly good MVP that kind of does what it says in the tin. And we've got decent community traction. And they're asking about a revenue model where we're like, okay, do you understand that the concept of what we're doing here? If we start charging for this right now when we're on the growth stage, I could give you a really good revenue model, but at the same time, I'm giving you something that could potentially change very, very quickly. And the quicker I get onto the conversations about that, as opposed to why the product should be in existence to begin with, I feel like I'm doing us a disservice and potentially them as well. So I try and frame the conversation in a way that lets them see the overarching idea of what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish and how the team is growing and how awesome it's been so far and finish with the revenue model as opposed to having the revenue model lead the conversation because that's not going to benefit us in any way. So yeah, that's some of the things I've, I've picked up on so far. That's interesting. You make it sound like there's also, as we talked about earlier, there are entrepreneurs who want to change the world and entrepreneurs who want to make a big buck. There might also be VCs who want to support companies that will change the world and VCs that are there to get good profits and high returns. And it could be, again, that paradoxically, the ones that are in it for the money actually generate the best returns. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think it's based on the type of VC as well. So there are a couple of VCs we were talking to. They like to lead on a seed round and they like to be first on the ticket in a Series A round. And then sometimes if they're big enough, they like to hop onto the Series B as well. They want to be part of everything. And so you've got to think, if you're dealing with a VC who's talking to a company like us, 
this might be a six year project, right? This might be a six year project to them and different to angels who want to potentially leave it a series, series A. This VC is essentially going like, right, apart from your founder, maybe your girlfriend, a couple of other people, I'm going to be entering into your life for the next serious part of your business and entrepreneurial life as a support system and network. I need to know that I can talk to you, trust you, and make sure that I believe that you're making the right decisions, not only for the people who are, have my cash, but also to make sure that I'm the best possible partner for you. And those people I have the, the best conversation with. And I honestly, if they end up not investing, I probably take it more personally, but I'm also really happy to have kind of talked through the process with them. And they give way better examples of why they won't work with you as opposed to will work with you. So the VCs you learn from are so awesome. Some great insights, Jack. Very happy to have you on. Thanks. <laughs> I usually talk way more, but I'm holding back. I'm just yeah. trying to like be <laughs> more considered. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Chill, perfect. This is chilled out, cool. mate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. All right. We'll have to have a beer at some point. Then. I love that. I hear Belgian beer is, uh, yes. I've had a few, Not bad. Had a few before. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thanks right. for letting me on. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we're getting very much off topic. So I guess uh, <laughs> let's round up the, the book discussion. So yeah, Sam and Jack, maybe we all three of us could give it. Oh yeah. Well, whatever you, you remember from the book, Jack, but give it a rating out of 10. I'll go for a yeah. nine. Because you're in it and it's super relevant. Yeah, yeah. And do you believe that everyone should read this? If you're me, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you should definitely finish it as well. <laughs> Yeah, no, when you're selling something, you have to actually know that like when it comes down to signing a contract, there's going to be a lot more detail to it than just them going, okay, it's not an autograph. It's an actual thing. So what you're actually talking about will make you a lot more relevant and will get you a lot more respect when you start talking to VCs for sure. So even for terminology's sake, it's worth reading. Yeah. Yeah, I would be the same in terms of like right now, trying to raise investment, probably one of the most useful books to be reading in like a nine. I kind of want to say sort of, seven for like general if you're just very interested in business i still think it's interesting and i put it like, like seven for just like background knowledge it's like not immediately implementable but it might give you ideas around what sort of businesses you might want to start or like getting more involved in vc might just be a lot more interesting to you having read this and it won't seem like such a mysterious world that you could obviously never go into but you can go into vc straight out of uni if you wanted to so yeah, I'd still give it like a not bad score. <laughs> a not bad score out of 10. Yeah, seven. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. So for me, I think I disagree on the part because for me, I think this is a very niche book that's either if you are uh, working in the VC space um, on the VC side, this is a very relevant book um, also on the legal part, or if you are an entrepreneur and you also are looking to raise money from external investors, it's a very relevant book, but I don't think there's a lot of people there. I mean, I think we are very biased because most of the people we know are in that space. And most people we've been talking to in the last months are in that space. But I think for general population, <laughs> this is a book that they shouldn't touch. So yeah, I think in general, I try to base my score on how useful it's going to be for the general population. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'll give it a three in general. Oh, come here with some straight fire. <laughs> it, me and Jack said nine. Our emails are jack at syncify.fm, sam syncify.fm, angel, seis, round of <laughs> And I've just made sure I will never make it into text. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank All right. Times. Awesome. I think that rounds up the episode. Next episode, we will be discussing, I think, the final book in this series, which is going to be Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. So a book about strategy. I've already started. Super interesting. So speak to you then. Good Cheers. Bye, guys. All right.
Yeah. Hey there, Nico here, your second favorite host of the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Sam and I would like to get some feedback from you. So what we're going to do from now on is each episode, we're going to select one random comment from the past weeks and we will give them a free electronic version of the book that we've just read. So if you like what we are doing or if you don't like what we're doing or if you have a comment or a question, just reach out and we might be in touch. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast. As you know, we are doing this to try and help you get smarter. Well, I have another project for podcast listeners just like you who want to be smart. Nico and I learned so much from reading the same things together and discussing them, and I wanted there to be a tool that made it easy for anyone to listen to the same podcasts and books together with their friends. So I'm building the app Syncify, which does just that. It connects you with your friends in the app listen to the same things at the same time, or create shared playlists and work through them at your own pace. You can share comments and highlights of your favourite bits and become smarter by seeing what your friends think around the same content that you enjoy. As a bonus, it also helps with your mental health and reduces isolation. Personally, I hate publishing my life on social media, which I find all rather antisocial and I don't go out of my way to phone a friend for no reason other than the fact I feel lonely. But I do love doing things with other people, and having my friends listen to the same things is is really awesome. I mean, I used to speak to Nico like once a year before we started this book club together, and now we talk all the time because we're just doing something together. So do yourself a favour and sign up for the Syncify app at syncifyapp.com, and I really hope it helps. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything new, be sure to share it with your friends. And I just can't tell you how great it is if you were to happen to leave a review on iTunes. These really do help quite a lot. If you have any questions or books that you'd like us to read, feel free to reach out to us through the website wiserpod.com or reach out to us on LinkedIn. And just keep loving and keep learning and ideally keep listening. Big love from Sam and Nico and the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast.